0: Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Now, this is the final week of our current sermon series in the letter to the Galatians, which is Paul's desperate attempt to preserve the gospel amongst those believers and lead them away from false teaching running rampant within their churches. Now, you might be relieved to hear that we're almost done with Galatians. You've probably heard enough about circumcision to last a pretty long time. Or at least until we read Romans or Ephesians or Colossians or Acts. Point being, it was actually a pretty big deal in the New Testament. But before we read these final verses, let's review what we've learned over the past seven Sundays. So in Galatians chapter one, Paul argued that he is called by God, not man. But then on top of that, he says that the message he preaches, the gospel of Christ, Is from God, not from man. In chapter two, Paul argues that Jew and Gentile alike are all sinners, incapable of keeping God's law sufficiently. And thus, they can only be justified by faith in Christ. And the same is true of us. In chapter three, Paul argues that this goes all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. This is how God has always saved sinners. Justification by faith is God's plan all along. And then in chapter four, Paul says that having been justified by faith in Christ, we are now bearers of the Holy Spirit. We are sons and daughters of God. And then in chapter five, Paul says that by the grace that he has shown us, God has given us freedom from the eternal grip of sin and death. But he's also given us freedom to serve him serve each other and bear the fruit of the spirit for his glory. And then, of course, last week, we saw several practical ways this fruit of the spirit can be made visible in the life of a church, how it can be seen in a household of faith. We can display the fruit of the spirit by holding each other accountable, by bearing each other's burdens and encouraging each other to faithfulness and to not give up. Now, like last week, we may be tempted to read over today's verses pretty quickly. Again, it's easy to do that when you near the end of one of Paul's letters. However, I think Paul's conclusion to the book of Galatians can pose three challenging questions to all of us. So we're going to ask ourselves those three questions this morning. But before we do, let's open up to Galatians chapter 6 verse 11. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here or use your own Bible. And let's pray before we do any reading. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together as a church family. Uh, Thank you for new faces here this morning. Uh, Thank you for people we've missed. Thank you for people who aren't here, Father, people who are traveling, people who are ill. Uh, We ask that you give them health and Safety, uh, watch over all of those people as well. And Father, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you. I pray that as we hear from your word, as we sing these songs, as we take communion, we would be reminded that you deserve all of the glory. And Father, I pray that we would give it to you through the way we worship. Father, thank you for the kids in the sanctuary with us, uh, the joy and privilege that we have to serve as an example uh, to these kids about what it means to worship you. I pray that we would be good examples, uh, but I also pray that we would maybe even learn a thing or two from them. And Father, again, thank you for this time we have together as a church family, like we talked about last week, a household of faith. Be with us as we learn together, as we grow together, as we serve together, as we love together, uh, as we go through the ups and downs of life together. And the ups and downs of following your son together. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. That's what this morning is all about. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Let's start by reading Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Paul says there. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. That's one of my favorite verses. When people ask for your life verse, I always say Galatians 6:11. And they turn to it and they say, "Really? What?" Well, actually, fun fact about Galatians 6:11, we say that Paul wrote all these letters and in a sense he did write these letters, but what was probably happening is that Paul wasn't actually holding the pen. For many of his letters, he likely had kind of a personal secretary there with him. And so Paul would sit there and probably have his foot up on some type of podium and he would dictate what he wanted the secretary to write. And the writer would then write it down. But in verse 11, Paul is closing the letter and he is taking the pen because he wants to make sure that the people reading it know how serious he is. So that's verse 11. Verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So the first observation that Paul makes is the cowardice of the false teachers. According to Paul, the Judaizers didn't emphasize the necessity of circumcision just out of dedication to the Old Testament law. They didn't teach what they taught just because they thought Paul's message was too good to be true. They didn't lead the Galatians down this dangerous road just because they thought faith in Christ was insufficient for salvation. That was all part of it. But they had another motivation as well. According to Paul, their false teaching arose out of fear. They were scared of being bullied. The false teachers were afraid of being persecuted if they taught the gospel that Paul preached. And, you know, to be honest, they weren't crazy for thinking this. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you see that they had every reason to worry. In the book of Acts, we see how all kinds of people responded to the gospel of Christ. Sometimes people would hear it and then harmlessly walk away, maybe mocking the preacher as they go, other times they would try to shame the preacher or intimidate him or argue with him. But then some other times they would resort to outright violence. Jewish people were guilty of it in the New Testament and Gentiles were as well. So, again, the false teachers saw all of this happening before their very eyes. They knew what could happen to some of those people who preached the gospel of Christ They heard about Stephen being stoned to death. They knew the opposition that Paul faced. And so they surveyed the landscape, took stock, saw what could happen to them if they preached the real gospel, and then simply didn't have the guts. They settled on a powerless, counterfeit, unoffensive gospel that wouldn't get them in trouble. And so as a result, the good news that they preached wasn't actually good news. It wasn't true, but it was safe. It didn't cost them anything. And so that's what they taught. Now, that leads us to difficult question number one that I think we can ask of ourselves this morning. Question one is this. Would we seek to preserve the one true gospel in the face of? Of persecution? Would we seek to preserve the one true gospel in the face of persecution? Paul did, and as we'll see in just a few verses, he had the marks to prove it. But if we thought that we'd get looked down upon, oppressed, or bullied for our faith, would we be more like the false teachers? Would we choose a lie in order to save our own skin? Or would we be more like Paul, preaching and living the truth, even when it made life harder, and even if it made life dangerous? Now, of course, it's easy to give a brave answer when the question is hypothetical. We can all sit here and say, well, of course I would be brave. Of course I would stick to the truth. Well, again, it's easy to respond that way when it's just a hypothetical. But just because the question might be hypothetical doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask it. I mean, let's be honest. We live in a place where, for better or for worse, it's almost always easy to be a Christian. Now, this is for the better in the sense that none of us should have a naive or romantic view of persecution. We should be grateful to live in a place where we can worship freely. And where the odds of facing violence for our faith are slim to none. However, an easy Christianity can also be for the worse. In the sense that it can produce lukewarm believers. Believers with their roots in rocky soil. Who will wither away the second that the heat gets turned up. Believers who will cave in the second that following Christ actually becomes difficult. Now, again, it is almost always easy to be a Christian in our context. But here's the thing. It might not be that way forever. History can turn on a dime. So again, let's ask the question. Would we seek to preserve the one true gospel in the face of persecution? The sticking points today might not be debates about circumcision Or how to apply the Old Testament law the way it was in Paul's day. Today, it could be your stance on what God says about marriage, sex, the family, human dignity, or human identity. The persecution today might not be the threat of getting stoned to death or burned at the stake. It could be something a little less messy. Like losing your career, your reputation, your financial stability, or your relationships with friends and family. All because you're a Christian. Now, if that stuff became the case, would you seek to preserve the gospel in the face of that persecution? Again, as long as the question is hypothetical, it's almost impossible to answer with any real confidence. But it's still worth thinking about because it might not be hypothetical forever. But let's jump forward to verse 13. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the God of Israel. So one way that these false teachers could keep potential persecutors off their back was by pointing to all the Gentile believers they won to their cause. In that sense, they could make a show of the Galatians flesh. They could boast in the Galatians flesh. They could tally up all the converts that they got, all the circumcisions they performed, like a televangelist bragging about how many decisions they brought about. So Paul stresses again that it's not about circumcision. It's about Christ. It's about faith working through love. It's about the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's about being a new creation that only God can bring about. But then in an almost contradictory way, Paul says these false teachers aren't just cowards afraid of persecution. They're prideful about how many people they've won to their side. That's what they boast in. That's their glory. That's where the only hope and the only confidence that they have lies. So that brings us to question number two. What do we boast in? Where do our glory, our hope, and our confidence lie? You know, as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about social media. Because it's a tool that can be used for all kinds of wonderful, God-glorifying things. But it's also a great tool for boasting. Deep down, maybe part of the reason we use it so much is because it allows more of us to boast more frequently about more things on a bigger stage than we've ever had before. But you don't have to do it on social media. We can do it in all kinds of ways. We boast about our educations, our promotions, our vacations, our families, our appearance, our reputations, the people we know, our physical health, and maybe even our spiritual health. We boast about acts of charity, honesty, compassion, and justice. The practice often negatively labeled virtue signaling. We are very good boasters. We do it in all kinds of ways, about all kinds of things. But Paul says that he boasts in Christ alone. The cross of Christ. That's it. Now, to some people, Paul had a lot to boast about. His Jewish pedigree was spotless. His religious works were numerous. And he had a brilliant philosophical and theological mind, just to name a few things. But then to other people, Paul had very little to boast about. His appearance was unimpressive. Some ancient sources indicate that Paul wasn't exactly eye candy. He had this thorn in his side that... Wouldn't go away. This weakness that hampered him throughout his adult life. And he may have been on top of the world at one time. But that ship had sailed long ago. But as Paul looks at himself. As Paul looks at his life. And as Paul looks at eternity. He says, you know, I have nothing to boast in but Christ. Jesus is his only hope. His only confidence, his only glory in both this life and the next. So again, we have to ask ourselves, what do we boast in? Eternally, the truth is that we have nothing to brag about in and of ourselves. We never have to worry about impressing God. Left to ourselves, we have nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to offer It's only by God's grace that we can boast in Christ. It's only by God's grace that we have the cross. Now, to most people in Paul's day and age, the cross was a horrific tool of execution. Nothing that you would ever want to boast in. And to many in our day and age, the cross is a meaningless, watered down, outdated, and maybe even slightly embarrassing symbol. Again, nothing to boast in. But we do boast in it and we boast in the one who died on it because we have nothing else to boast about in eternity. Now, again, in this life, you may have a lot of reason to boast. You may have all the things that we listed earlier, the accomplishments, the accolades, the connections. But don't forget that if you're a follower of Christ, you have been crucified to this world. And this world has been crucified to you. And eternally, all your hope, all your confidence, and all your glory is in Christ alone. Nothing and no one else. But let's open to verses 17 and 18. Closing out the letter. Paul says there. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So verse 18 is the final conclusion to the letter. But verse 17 is what I really want you to focus on. In context, when Paul uses that phrase, the marks of Jesus, he's referring to the cuts, the bruises, the scars that he bears for the sake of Christ. Each one of those had its own story of suffering. Its own story of persecution for the gospel. Maybe there were broken bones that never quite healed right from his stoning in Lystra. Maybe you could still see the marks from where he was shackled in that prison in Philippi. You could look at his back and see what he mentions in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says there that he was beaten with rods three times and received 39 lashes five times. That'll leave a mark. Now, the word for marks in this passage is stigmata. You may have heard that word before, especially in some mystical traditions where people will magically wake up and have the marks of Jesus on their hands and their feet and their forehead and their side. There have even been kind of horror movies made about stigmata, but that's not what Paul is referring to. That word stigmata is where we get the word stigma that we use today. We say there's a stigma attached to something if we find it disgraceful or inappropriate or embarrassing. Well, in the ancient world, slaves or soldiers would sometimes be given a physical mark, a stigma by their owner or by their superior. They would have a tattoo or a brand, some type of mark to show who their owner was or which country they served. Well, Paul bore the marks. The stigmata of Christ. He had the scars and the cuts and the bruises. And when people saw those marks, they knew who Paul belonged to. They knew who Paul served. So that leads us to question number three. Do you bear the marks of Christ? Can people look at you and know who you belong to? Do people look at you and know Who you serve. Now, I doubt you bear physical injuries like Paul. Scars, cuts, bruises. But can someone watch your life and know that you're a believer? You know, I have to admit that I think there's something admirable about people who literally wear their faith on their sleeve. People who bear outward marks of their beliefs. I think there's something strangely attractive about the Muslim woman wearing a hijab over her face or a Jewish man wearing a Yarmulke on his head or even a Mormon missionary wearing a name tag on their suit. I find those things admirable and attractive because it takes courage and it takes dedication to put yourself out there like that for the world to see. When you wear those things, you're making yourself publicly vulnerable. You are just begging people to ask questions about your faith. You're giving people the opportunity to mistreat you for your faith. When really it would be a whole lot easier to just keep it all private. Now I'm not saying that you should go out and buy some massive cross necklace. Or start wearing a clergy collar. Or break out the old cheesy Christian t-shirt so that you can figuratively bear the marks of Christ. But again I will ask... What about our lives? Do we bear the marks of Christ? Can the people that we spend the most time with tell that we belong to Jesus? Can people look at us and know who we serve above all else? Now, again, I think these are all challenging questions. Would we preserve the gospel in the face of persecution? And what do we boast And do we bear the marks of Christ? But even if these questions are hard, and even if some of them are much more hypothetical than the others, I think they're worth asking. And I think in a way they tie together. Look at it this way. The person who boasts in Christ alone. In fact, the person who boasts enough to bear his marks for all the world to see. That person may invite questions opposition, or possibly even persecution. Now, is that really a path that you want to go down? Well, I think Paul would tell us that it's worth it. Because in the big scheme of things, God's approval is what truly matters anyway. Way back in chapter one, Paul said, am I serving man or am I serving God? If I wanted God's approval, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. God's approval is what matters. And thanks to Christ, we are approved. We are loved. We are justified. We are adopted. We are saved. Not by any work of ours, but by the death and resurrection of Christ. And I think Paul would look at us and say, you know, that's something worth being persecuted for. That's something worth boasting about. That is a mark worth bearing. And so I pray that we would be willing to be persecuted for our faith if and when it comes to it. I pray that we would boast in Christ alone, even though there are so many other things that our world values more. And I pray that we would bear the marks of Christ for everyone to see who we belong to and who we serve. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for challenging portions of your word. Again, these questions that we've talked about today are mostly hypothetical and also challenging. But I pray that we would rise to the challenge by your grace and by your mercy, by your spirit within us, with the guidance of your word, that we would be faithful witnesses to your son. People willing to be persecuted, people willing to boast in Christ alone, and people willing to bear the marks of Christ for all to see. I pray that would characterize each and every one of us as individual believers, but I also pray it would characterize our church family together. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the visitors who are worshiping with us today. Again, we simply pray that this morning would be honoring to you and encouraging and convicting for us. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. Thank you for Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen.